Well, thank you, Matthew, and it's good to be with you all again this morning. And uh, as you put it, what the Lord has laid on your heart, that's a, a good way to uh, introduce the message this morning. I was planning to preach on Psalm 19, and then on Monday, or I think it's Monday or Tuesday, I texted Steve and Laurie, and I said, can we do a change-up and make it Psalm 131? Uh, the gist of it being the Lord has really just kind of laid that one on my heart. So I hope that it's because He intends to uh, lay it on yours as well. Um, when I was in high school, I had four years of excellent English literature teachers. But at no point in those four years did they have in me uh, an excellent or even above average or most days average uh, English literature student. Um, things just didn't connect with me at that time in life. I wasn't a reader. That came, that came later. And when I would hear other students talking about themes and, oh, the character development here, and look at this plot twist, and I, just, I had no idea what they were talking about. It just, none of it grabbed me. Uh, with one exception, there was one poem that I think we read in 11th grade by a poet named W.B. Yeats, and it was called The Lake Isle of Innisfree. And in this poem, Yeats describes uh, a cherished place on a tranquil lake with a small cabin. And he captures in a couple of stanzas just the, the beauty and peace of every morning and every evening. And he describes at the end how he's able to reconnect with that tranquility, with that peace, no matter where he is, uh, in, in these words. I will arise and go now. For always, night and day, I hear lake water lapping with low sounds by the shore. While I stand on the roadway or on the pavement's gray, I hear it in the deep heart's core. Now my young mind took the second and fourth line in that last stanza and kind of fused it. And it became, I was enchanted by it. It became something that I prayed for. I would, I would say, Lord, as I'm deciding where to go to college or what major to, to pick or what to do after college, you can take me wherever you want me to go as long as you just would give me the ability to hear lake water lapping in the deep heart's core. In 1989, many years after Yeats uh, wrote his poem, Peter Vale wrote a, a leadership book called Managing as a Performing Art, New Ideas for a World of Chaotic Change. And it, it became one of those leadership books that all the subsequent leadership books refer to in the Harvard Business Review quotes every year. And Vail's basic thesis was this, that at the end of the 20th century, leaders needed to be prepared for their environment to change and for the style of leadership to need to change as well. That up to that point, he says leaders of organizations or nonprofits or businesses or whatever you have, they were kind of like paddlers of a canoe that would navigate their people down a river that had this mixture or sequence of calm and then white water and then another season of calm and then white water. An, un an unexpected disruption, an unexpected challenge, an unexpected crisis. But then on the other end of that, maybe a few years of relative tranquility. And he said, in the 21st century, no more calm. Leadership will be navigating your organization, your business, your practice, your school, 
your family, your church, through what he called and became very famous in the literature, permanent whitewater. Now, I don't know about you, but just this, the, the, that name gives me anxiety. <laughs> but does it not also describe exactly what we are experiencing in our culture today and what we're experiencing in our churches and in our hospital systems and in our political systems and in our schools and universities and in our families? Mostly, if not permanent, whitewater. So here's my question today. How can we live in permanent whitewater and at the same time hear lake water lapping in the deep heart's core? That is God's will for believers, right? Jesus doesn't remove us from troubles. The Christian life is oftentimes one of constant trouble, but his will, his desire for you, his resources available to you in Christ are such that you could navigate your life through permanent white water and yet still have the precious gift of a quiet heart to steady you and stir to you for a life that counts. So how can we navigate through permanent white water while having a heart that hears lake water lapping in the deep parts core? Turn with me to Psalm 131 and let's look at this small psalm of just three verses written by David, following on Psalm 130 that Matthew preached a few, a few weeks ago. I almost said a few years ago. A few weeks feel like a few years these days, don't they? So it's a psalm that follows on a, a psalm of pardon, an assurance of pardon, that the Lord will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. And then kind of what's next is this prayer in Psalm 131. O Lord, my heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me, but I have calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child with its mother, like a weaned child is my soul within me. O Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. Let us pray. Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. In Jesus' name we ask it. Amen. So three verses, three aspects to David's heart and ours as we pray this psalm. Uh, first is freed from, freed from our pretension. Second, filled with his presence. Third, focused on his worth. So let's begin in verse 1 as we see freed from our pretension. David prays, my heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. Your translation may have it this way. My heart is not proud, nor my eyes haughty. In a nutshell, David is saying that he's not angling to be more than he is. Pretension is that desire to impress or to, to appear or come across as impressive, to set our hearts on that, that next level version of ourselves that we can so easily imagine. That version that is, is more heard, more respected, more valued, more envied, more powerful, more influential. That's kind of our default obsession in life, how we can get to that next level to be more impressive than we are right now. 
Why did Adam and Eve eat the, the forbidden fruit in the garden? The serpent tempted them, tempted them to, to raise their eyes too high, to set their hearts on things that were lifted up, to be like God, knowing good and evil. They saw the chance to be a little bit more impressive than they felt themselves to be at that current moment and station that God had created them to occupy. And they passed down that desire, that discontentment, that obsession to every man and woman and child since. We're born with it. We are never content thus with the station, the place that God has us at a given moment in time. We always want to get on to what's next and move on to what is greater. And if we really were to search our prayers, kind of peel back the layers of our prayers and look at the deep heart motive, how much of our praying is, is trying to recruit God to back our plan to get to that next level? Do you ever find that your prayer is, is essentially something a, a more subtle, crafty version of this? Uh, Lord, I'm, I feel so restricted in my ability to serve you where I am. But if you would lift me to here, if you would open this for me, I, at that level, could do so much more for you than I can right now. Can anyone relate to that? Maybe a mom. Maybe you're in the same job you've had for several years and it feels thankless and stuck. Whatever it may be, how often do we secretly try to recruit God to back our plan to get us to the next level, thinking if you'd get me there, then I could really do something for you. Here David says, I'm not playing that game right now. He's not pretending to be more than he is or that he needs to be more than he is. And second, he's not searching to know more than he can. He goes on to pray. I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me. What are the things that, that are too great and too marvelous? Is he talking about things like the doctrine of the Trinity or the doctrine of predestination or the, the teachings that lace through Paul's epistle to the Romans? I'd say no. I think that would be a real misuse of this passage to think that he's saying, don't try to understand the deep things of God that he's revealed in his word and revealed to his church and through the centuries by the work of his Holy Spirit drawn out from the scriptures and presented so that people high and low, young and old, can understand who they worship and what he has planned for his people. God doesn't think those things are too great and too marvelous for us. That's why he's revealed them to us in his word. But what has he not revealed to us that is too great and too marvelous for us? It would not be good for us to occupy ourselves too much with these things. Well, he has not revealed to us exactly how the future is going to unfold. We might know the big picture plan, first coming of Christ, second coming of Christ, building his church, expanding, deepening, extending his kingdom, calling all his elect from every tribe, nation, and tongue to himself, and sanctifying his people to prepare them to be a bride presented to Christ, the bridegroom, at the end. We know the big picture, but exactly how? We don't know. You know ancient peoples and even primitive peoples to this day, when they would kill an animal, or in some cases, you can read about how they used to do this in England and Scotland and Wales in the medieval time. When they would kill a person, they'd cut them open and look at their organs to divine the future. And we don't do that anymore. At least I hope, I hope you're not doing that. 
But what do we do? We have our, our well-placed sources. We have our professional prognosticators. We have our self-styled prophets on YouTube, and we run their click counts up. Why? Because we so badly want to know exactly what's going to happen next and how. You know, after 9-11, I spent a lot of time reading up on the oil industry. There were whole shelves at Barnes and Noble, 2001 to 2003, 4, 5, that were all about the international oil industry and blogs and videos and all the rest. And the, the basic message in all of the literature and in all the predictions was, you know, America's energy dependence is a deep problem. It's going to get worse. Gas prices are going to go up to $5, $6, $7 a gallon, and this will be the new normal. That's what everyone said in 2001. What no one said was, we're about to develop some technology for extracting oil from, from shale. And America in 2018 is going to become the world's largest producer of crude oil. And in 2019, 2021, for a host of reasons, gas prices are going to be the least of our concerns. In other words, everyone who pretended to see the future didn't. Let me ask you on a personal level, how many of you are living a life that 10 years ago you would have predicted? Show of hands, how many of you 10 years ago would have never thought you'd be in Clemson, South Carolina right now? Two? Wow, y'all are really good predictors of your life. I think there's a few more. But. The opportunities you now have, the challenges you now have, the losses you now have, the things in the last 10 years that have defined you as a person are probably things you could never have predicted 10 years ago. There are things God has revealed and there are things he hasn't. Deuteronomy 29, 29. The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that he's revealed, he's revealed to us and to our children. David is saying, I do not occupy myself with seeking to know the secret things of God. I do not occupy myself with seeking to know the, the details of the future that he has not revealed. If we do, if we're always seeking to know the future and always seeking to be more than we are, we will never have lake water lapping in the deep heart's core. Things will always be churned up, always stirred, never settled. David has found this peace of being reconciled to who he is and all that he is and knowing what he knows and only knowing what he knows. When his descendant comes a thousand years later and gives his most famous sermon, Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, he opens it with a line that sets the course of the whole sermon when he says, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who are not chasing a more impressive version of themselves, who are not angling to be more than they are, to search to know more than they can. They're blissfully emptied of all pretension. But not for the sake of staying empty. Which brings us to our second verse, where we see that David is praying as a man filled with God's presence, filled with his presence. But I have calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child with its mother, like a weaned child is my soul within me. Now, as I thought about this psalm, I thought it'd be a, this would be a far more popular psalm. I'm, I'm assuming most of you are not super familiar with Psalm 131. 
But maybe we would be if David had chosen a different metaphor. If David the king, the soldier, the warrior had said, I have calmed and quieted my soul like a soldier sleeping soundly, trusting completely his commander's plan is my soul within me. Now, in a lot of circles, we've got a a top ten song. But that's not the metaphor David chose. Why does he use the metaphor of a weaned child? A lot of you moms immediately know why. When an unweaned child, still breastfeeding, cozies up to his or her mother, it's because that child wants something from its mother. I want food. And I will not be satisfied until you give me what... I want. But when a weaned child, now on to bottles and solid foods and sippy cups, when a weaned child cozies up to its mother, it's not wanting something from her, it's just wanting her. It's wanting her presence. The little guy scraped his knee, or the little girl's woken up from a scary dream, and there in mom's lap and cuddled in her arms. Her presence strengthens the child, comforts the child, and sends him sprinting back out to the swing set or ready to be tucked back into bed in her room by herself. The soldier, confident in his commander's plan, isn't seeking the commander's presence. And so that's why David doesn't use that metaphor. He uses this one. Because David has found at critical times in his life that the presence of the Lord is what he needs and the presence of the Lord is enough. One of, my, one of my favorite episodes from the life of David comes at the end of 1 Samuel chapter 30. It's the culmination of chapters 27, 28, 29. And just the Cliff Notes version, David is anointed to be the next king. Saul has just made his second attempt on David's life. So David and his now 600 loyal mighty men have fled Israel, are are in Philistia, and one of the local princes in Philistia has given David his 600 mighty men and their families a town called Ziklag to call home. David has been there for some time. Uh, In what's a questionable decision, he leads his men to leave Ziklag behind and the wives and children behind and try to go join in battle with the Philistines. And when they're rejected by the Philistine princes from joining their army, they're safe to return home. But when they return home, a foreign raiding party has come through and reduced their town to smoke and ashes and taken off with their wives and their children. And that's where we are in 1 Samuel 30, verse 5. With David's loyal mighty men grieving and weeping until they could weep no more and threatening to stone David. So if David has been navigating down Whitewater, this is one of the class five rapids in his life. All right, the boat's been overturned. Everyone is, is, is swimming for their lives, and there's little hope of rescue for David in this moment. And everything in the episode turns on this one passage, this one line at the end of verse six, where we read, but David, all right, his mighty men are threatening to stone him. Maybe they're holding him like a hostage right now. Maybe he's surrounded by them. Maybe he's off at what are the ashes of, his, ashes of his old house at the moment. But David strengthened himself in the Lord. And everything turns 
from that moment of strengthening himself in the Lord. You can go and read it this afternoon. He rallies his men. They pursue the raiding party. They win everything back. Nothing is lost. But that was the turning point at that low point. In Psalm 138, David writes, On the day I called, you answered me. My strength of soul, you increased. David's learned how to be strengthened by the presence of the Lord. You know, that's Paul's desire for the church in Ephesians 3. He says, I pray that you might be filled with all the fullness of God. That's his, that's his prayer for Ephesus and his prayer for the church throughout the ages. And just let's take a quick little minute. If you have your Bibles, turn to Ephesians 5 just to ask how and what does that look like? To be filled with the presence of God by his Holy Spirit. Ephesians 5 verses 18 to 20 and 21 It describes the spirit-filled life, which is confusing to many of us. It's been oftentimes confusing to me. But this may be the best place to get our bearings about it. What does it look like? What does it feel like to be filled with the spirit? Paul writes, And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the spirit. Quick note there, do not get drunk with wine is what we call a present continuous verb. It means do not be getting drunk with wine. It's it's your go-to day in, day out. It's what you go to to pacify yourself or to strengthen yourself. It could be wine. It could be some other drink or spirits as we call them. It could be drugs. It could be eating. Increasingly in our culture, I say this from first-hand experience, I think health and wellness are becoming a kind of of drink that we go to to pacify and strengthen ourselves. Another, like a, a good thing, a creaturely thing that we're seeking to, to exercise a spiritually stabilizing force in our lives. But whatever it is, something else is what you've been filling yourself on and, and Paul is saying for the Christian you need to repent of that. Be repenting of that substitute for the Holy Spirit that you're seeking to strengthen and pacify you as you go through the white water of life. But be filled with the Spirit. That too is a present continuous. Be being filled would be the best way to describe it. So a a believer who's filled with the Spirit, you might say, well, when were you filled with the Spirit? And the answer would be this morning, uh, right now. You wouldn't point to some, some big event five or 10 or 15 years ago and say, the Spirit rushed into the reservoir of my soul then, and I've been drawing from that reservoir ever since. No, it's a stream coming into your soul, a stream going out. Much was the life of Christ coming in, the life of Christ going out by the, by the Holy Spirit. Calvin says this very clearly. It's a continuous filling that the believer needs day in and day out. What does that then look like, and how do we kind of access this more? Verse 19, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. We all have songs that we sing in our hearts. The question is where they come from and what they're doing for us. Are they telling us that we have what it takes, we have enough, go be that next level version of yourself? Or are they psalms about the magnificence and power and beauty and love and provision of God to us in Christ? made ours through the Holy Spirit. Behold our God, seated on his throne. Come let us adore him. Oh, that's a song to sing. But not just by yourself, to one another. The spirit-filled man or woman wants to be 
in the company of other believers, joining their voice to the voices of others. And I have not talked to the staff or the ruling elders. No one asked me to say this. But I'm intimately familiar with about eight different churches right now around the Carolinas. And things are reopening everywhere. And there's a large contingent of every church that hasn't come back yet. So, so if you're watching this and, and you, you aren't quarantining, you aren't sick, you don't have some significant pre-existing condition, you need to be back here next Sunday. Because the Spirit-filled life is one of addressing one another with songs and hymns and spiritual songs. Not just hearing through your computer what other people are singing, but joining your voice to them right here. That's one way that you will fill yourself with God's Holy Spirit. Come back. It's time to come back. Giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. What quenches the Spirit and constricts our vessel for receiving that continuous inflow is a spirit of grumbling and complaining. Thanking God for some things, but being unable to thank Him for other things. And Paul says that the, the secret here is learning to give God thanks for everything. Oh, I could, if we had the time, I could give you illustrations from church history, from personal lives, from the lives of, of people that God's privileged me to know, just ordinary believers who had a hardship in their life that they've been grumbling about for years, and they finally said, Lord, you've put this in my life, so I'm going to take the time to thank you for it. And oh, it opened up their heart to receive his fullness, his peace, and his strengthening power to serve him. Submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. To be filled with God's presence. Is, is there someone in your life that you're needing to submit yourselves to them to seek what's best for them rather than think of yourself first? And your refusal to do that is the source of your greatest agitation. Paul says, if you want to be filled with the Spirit, within the body of Christ, there needs to be a submitting to one another. And that too will further open the channel of your heart to receive a continuous infilling of the Holy Spirit. Out of reverence for Christ. This is the ultimate end. You don't do it just for yourself. You don't do it just for the well-being of the body. You do it for him. And that's what brings us then to the third verse of this psalm. Freed from our pretension, filled with his presence. Verse 3, focused on his worth. David says, O Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. His, his bandwidth has been freed up now that he knows God is with him. God is taking care of him. He's, he's free to think about other people. And so he's calling out to his brothers and sisters in the flesh and in the faith, O Israel. We would say, O Church of Christ. And he's saying, put your hope in the Lord. Notice he doesn't say, put your hope in the outcome. Sometimes the Bible encourages us to trust that God does have a better outcome for us. We saw a couple weeks ago in Psalm 126, those who sow in tears will reap in rejoicing. The Lord oftentimes ordains an outcome on the other side of a trial that we will arrive at experience and say the trial was worth it. But right here, David puts the focus on the Lord himself. Not on a better day around the bend. 
Not on a victory for Israel. Not on hope and change. Not on hope that the best is yet to come. But is hope not on the what, but on the who. Our hope as we are navigating whitewater is in the person of the triune God. Imagine with a a hypothetical situation. Um, Maybe some of y'all like to cook. Imagine that you had the chance to become trained as a chef, really trained. And you realize you've got a talent for it. You're good at this. So you go through culinary school. And when you come out on the other side, uh, you're offered a job. And it's a job as a private chef for one of the wealthiest, most influential, and just to make it even rosier, let's add, truly decent people in the world. And they say to you, I want you to cook my dinner six nights a week, and I want you to be unhindered in what you can envision and pursue. I want to give you an unlimited budget. If you need a certain kind of fresh-caught seafood or a rare spice or something that's in season in another part of the world, whatever extravagant thing it is, you let me know, I will send one of my pilots to retrieve it and have it for you by 4 p.m. I want you to take your skills to the highest level to thrill your heart and whatever you envision, your creativity and your hands can do. And I want your freedom to be backed with security. Here's the contract. I've signed it. You put the number of years. In other words, I want this to be your dream job because I really love my dogs. And I want my dogs to eat like no dogs have ever eaten in the history of the world. So you'll be cooking for them with no limits on budget, pilots, kitchenware, sous chefs. It's all yours for the sake of my dogs. Now, everything about that is a dream job, except for just this one part, right? Just this one part is off. But it's the part that matters most. It's the end. It's the who. Whom are you serving with your life? D.L. Moody once said, the only thing worse than failure is succeeding at something that doesn't really matter. The only thing worse than failure is succeeding at something that doesn't really matter. It wouldn't matter if you spent your whole life cooking the best food ever and if it was served to dogs. And do you know what? God didn't make dogs for us to serve them with our talents, at least not culinary talents, or at least not world-class culinary talents, maybe some culinary talents. All right. But he also didn't make people to validate your existence. He didn't make other people to be the basis of your self-worth and approval. No, he created them in his image to find their worth in him. And it's not right for them to pretend they can validate your existence. It's not right for you to expect them to. It goes both ways. The only thing that makes life truly worth living is to live it for the most worthy person of all, the Lord Jesus Christ.
And the beauty of the gospel is this. If you're serving him, you're serving someone who is already pleased with you. Already satisfied with you. He's already clothed you in his robe of righteousness and you don't add anything to it by by trying to add merit badges to his robe of righteousness. He has reconciled you to the Father by his death on the cross and it's done, it's finished, it's yours. His blood has covered all of your sin. It's that complete and that powerful. So you don't serve him to earn one thing. You serve him only to express your gratitude and you serve him to show forth his worth. So what part of your life says, I believe this. I believe this. And so if this is where the Lord has me right now, I'll bear this burden for him. I'll stay in this marriage for him. I will make the most of this season of singleness for him. I will do this thankless job to the best of my ability tomorrow morning and this week because I'm going to start doing it for him. Not because I know the outcome, but because I believe that Jesus is worth it. Sometimes the Lord keeps us in a place we don't like And I wish I had time to share personal experiences of this. I could share them. Sometimes the Lord keeps us in a place that we don't like until we get to the place that we quit investing all of our energy of thinking what's next and trying to figure out the future. And we begin to say, this is where I am right now. The spirit and presence of the Lord is enough for me right now. And if I can please him doing this right now, then I will do this to the best of my ability right now and leave what comes of it to him. I have seen that so often be the key that unlocks the door to joy where you are. And oftentimes then the Lord says, you've passed this this time of testing and now you're ready for me to give you what's next. You weren't ready before, but now you're ready to receive what's next if you will do it for me. And maybe he has some of you there. Freed from our pretension, filled with his presence, focused on his worth. Maybe the white water is permanent. Maybe you'll have some blessed spells of of calm in between. Only God knows the future. But whatever the water is like outside you and underneath you, God's desire is that you would hear something like lake water lapping in the deep heart's core. And that you, as his son, as his daughter, precious and chosen in his eyes and washed in the blood of Christ, would be able in every season of life and situation to find that quiet heart so that you could then live for him a life that counts. Let us pray. Gracious God, And Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, Jesus is worth it. Open our hearts to see him and to love him and to not want to offer our lives to anyone or anything else but to him alone and to bless your name no matter the season, no matter the time, no matter the place.
Lord, we have preached this generally, but each of us sitting here is a particular person with a particular set and complex of situations. So we pray that your Holy Spirit, the master of this, would take these truths and work them into our hearts and our minds in the particularities of where we are and give us hearts that are ready and willing from now on to live for you. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.